0: Well, if you would, please turn your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah 11. I can't remember if I told you or not, Daniel, when I talked to our lead pastor about coming over here. He said, if that is a way we can serve, the way we at Grace Chapel are grateful to get to do that, it is a joy to be with you. I always look forward to being here. As we're coming into this word, Here in Isaiah 11, we'll be picking up right at the start of the chapter. Remember, trouble and fear are nothing new, are they? Sometimes, honestly, this time of year magnifies trouble and fear. Sometimes the light and the festivities and the insistence on, oh, we're being joyful now, reminds us not everything looks quite the same way. It's not all merry and bright. We might sing songs about keeping troubles miles away and keeping them out of sight, but they keep creeping back in, don't they? We need something better, brothers and sisters, than simply closing our eyes and pretending that everything's fine. Well, in Isaiah chapter 7 through 10, there's been plenty of trouble. We won't read all of those chapters this morning, fear not. But judgment is fast approaching. And currently strong kingdoms have set destruction dates. So in in chapter chapter 7, verse 8, he talks about the northern kingdom of Israel that was now dominant, that was now taking back land. He said, they've got 65 years, and they will be gone. Isaiah has told us there will be a son called Emmanuel, called Counselor, Mighty God, Father. Prince of Peace. In the meantime, he says that wickedness devours and Assyria looms as God's chosen tool of promised judgment. But there is hope. So in chapter 10, starting in verse 20, the Lord promises that the surviving remnant, and it will be a remnant, There will be many who don't make it, but the surviving remnant will learn not to count on their unfaithful neighbors, but instead on the Lord God of hosts. And he says that this Lord will gather the remnant and destroy the destroyers. And then here in chapter 11, the Lord brings Judah ultimate hope. A hope that they look ahead to, and a hope that we have seen in Christ's fullness. The Lord announces that one from David's line will come to rescue his people, bringing righteousness and peace and ensuring that not a single one of his people will be lost. The Holy Spirit says, starting in verse 1, "...there shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. His delight is in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge by the sight of his eyes, nor decide by the hearing of his ears, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, And with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his loins, and faithfulness the belt of his waist. Let's pray together. Father, this morning would you show us your Christ? Would you lift him up for all to see? Would you by your Spirit testify with our hearts, announce to our hearts that this Jesus is indeed worthy of of all of our praise and adoration and love and trust. Would you do that for us this morning? We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. So here in these verses we see Jesus as the rod of Jesse who brings righteousness and peace. He says there in verse 1 that David won't stay cut off. So he, he pictures a tree that is cut down. So King Ahaz and Later, King Manasseh are too vile to overlook as they are burning their own children. As they sacrifice their children for the sake of their future, imagining that they are pleasing fake gods. As they set up idols to worship in the temple that Solomon had dedicated to Yahweh, the one and only God. He announces, he has announced, that this tree will come to the ground. Only a stump is left. There in verse 1, when it talks about a stem of Jesse, it's a stump. And when Assyria and Babylon lead Israel and Judah into captivity, when King Zedekiah is dragged out of Jerusalem and they murder his sons in front of him moments before they blind him and lead him off in chains. So that the last thing that he sees is the end of the line. it looks like that promise to David that we read this morning has failed. Remember, the Lord has spoken through Nathan the prophet back in 2 Samuel 7, announcing that rather than David building him a temple, a house, he says, no, no, this Lord is going to build your house, David. He's going to give you a line, a dynasty that will not end. That's what we heard this morning in Psalm 89, isn't it? as Ethan the Ezrahite begins to sing of the sure mercies and the faithfulness of the Lord to David. If we had kept reading verses 19, go ahead and turn there for just a moment, we we won't read the whole psalm. But there in Psalm 89, as we keep reading verse 19 down to verse 37, is step-by-step rich, odd detail of how the Lord had, been, had promised to keep and to preserve David and his descendants, no matter what happened. Even if those descendants fall into sin, this Lord says, I will not abandon my promises. He says in verse 27, I will make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My mercy I will keep for him forever, and my covenant shall stand firm with him. Then in verse 30, he says, if his sons forsake my law and do not, keep, do not walk in my judgments, if they break my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. Nevertheless, my loving kindness, I will not utterly take from him, nor allow my faithfulness to fail. It says in verse 37, Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His seed shall endure forever, and his throne is the sun before me. He shall be established forever like the moon, even like the faithful witness in the sky. Ethan looks and says, Isn't it astonishing that this Lord has promised David all of this in a way that No other king, no other person had been given this kind of, we might say, a blank check in kindness. (coughs) But Psalm 89 is written in the wake of the judgment that Isaiah 7 through 10 promises. Ethan is sitting in the rubble of what's left of Jerusalem. Listen to his anguish starting there in verse 38. But you have cast off and abhorred. You have been furious with your anointed. You have renounced the covenant of your servant. You have profaned his crown by casting it to the ground. You have broken down all his hedges. You have brought his strongholds to ruin. All who pass by the way plunder him. He's a reproach to his neighbors. You have exalted the right hand of his adversaries. You've made all his enemies rejoice. You have also turned back the edge of his sword and have not sustained him in battle. You have made his glory cease and cast his throne down to the ground. The days of his youth you have shortened. You have covered him with shame. Now, brothers and sisters, there are a lot of psalms that have that tone of why I don't understand. And many of those psalms then resolve themselves of wait, I see now. Or, Lord, you've answered. This psalm doesn't. <coughs> psalm 89, except for verse 52 is added later as a section of psalms comes to a close. But this psalm ends with how long they've reproached the footsteps of your anointed. Ethan is left saying what happened to all of those promises He's still praying in faith. And he is weeping because he says, as near as I can tell, this faithful God stopped being faithful. Now, that's not the end of the story. In God's wisdom, in God's providence, Psalm 89 is followed by Psalm 90, which starts by saying, there is a king. Thank you very much. There is a king in Israel. It is the Lord. There will be an answer 400 years out. 500 years from where Ethan is sitting. He's not going to see that answer. There is an answer. But the Lord says through Isaiah here that there will be new growth. He hadn't forgotten his promises. He hadn't changed his mind. As a matter of fact, this promised one is not simply the son of David. He's a new David. Notice there in Isaiah 11 verse 1. This is a rod from the stem, not of David, a stem of Jesse. This is a new David rising from Jesse's line He said, it's like a tree growing back from a stump. There's new life from what has been cut off. Remember a few weeks ago, we saw a big long list of names there in Matthew 1. That list does not end with the last king of the kingdom of Judah. We have centuries worth of people that we know nothing about until we come down to one. That by adoption is the son of Joseph, the husband of Mary, the mother of the Christ. This branch, verse two says, is filled by the Holy Spirit. It says the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. Now, in an Old Testament context, an Old Covenant context, the Spirit of the Lord resting on him could mean very simply what happened with David and with so many others, that the Spirit comes on this person to accomplish the mission of the moment. Think of Samson, ungodly, wicked, probably unbelieving Samson. Yet when the Spirit comes on him, he delivers the people of God. The rest of Scripture tells us there's more to it than that here. So, as we come to the New Testament in Luke 1, verse 35, we hear that the Holy Spirit overshadows Mary at conception. That this Jesus does not simply receive the Spirit, he is there because the Spirit conceives a child within Mary's womb. In Luke 4, Jesus is full of the Holy Spirit as he enters the wilderness. The reason he goes out into the desert to face hunger and trial and temptation is because the Holy Spirit puts him exactly there, and the Holy Spirit equips him to answer faithfully where Israel failed. In Luke 4.18, Jesus goes back to Nazareth, and in his first sermon, he reads from Isaiah 61, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And when he finishes reading, he rolls up the scroll and he says, You have seen that verse come to pass. Here I am. And in Acts ten thirty eight, Peter says, You know of Jesus of the Nazarene, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And again, brothers and sisters, normally when you and I picture the things that Jesus does in his earthly ministry, we tend to think, well, of course he was able to do those things. He's God. But Peter, led by the Holy Spirit, says, it's more than that. This is Jesus, the God-man who has set aside his, his benefits, his perks, his ability to just do whatever he would please. He says it is the Holy Spirit that motivates him and is the Spirit that enables him to work mighty works that show that this man is telling the truth, that God agrees with his judgment when he says things like, I have the right to forgive sins. I have the right to determine what Sabbath keeping looks like. I have the right to decide what is most important in the mind of God. Those mighty works given by the Spirit say the Father agrees completely. So this God-man Jesus, Isaiah says, will be filled with the spirit of wisdom and understanding. There's a reason he is the one greater than Solomon. He's indwelt by the spirit of counsel and of strength. This Jesus knows what to do, and by the Spirit is able to do everything that he should do. He he is inseparable from the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. (coughs) He knows the Father intimately, and he obeys his every desire. And because he is the wise, spirit-filled, Lord-fearing offspring of Jesse, this coming one is qualified to be the faithful king then in verse 3, it says, his delight is in the Lord, I'm sorry, is in the fear of the Lord. And he shall not judge by the sight of his eyes, nor decide by the hearing of his ears. In other words, he won't make his decisions based on how people look, or how they act, or how they can make smooth, slick speeches. He makes his mind up. On what is true and right. What lines up with His Father's view of the universe. That's what it means when it says, He makes His judgment, verse 4, With righteousness He shall judge the poor, And decide with equity for the meek of the earth. When He carries out judgment, And it says that He strikes the earth, Notice it's with the rod of His mouth. With the breath of his lips, he shall slay the wicked. He doesn't need any other weapon. The same living word that created by his word in Genesis 1. The same one that comes with a sharp sword from his mouth to strike the nations in Revelation 19. This king's word is law in a way that no dictator could match. What he says happens without exception, and because his every word is faithful and true, he never misuses that power. He always does it right. Notice he's dressed in righteousness there in verse five. And Alec Mo, I always mispronounce Motir. Alec Motir points out that the belt pictures. A readiness for action. It's, it's what Peter does in First Peter 1 of girding up the loins. We would say rolling up the sleeves, getting ready for work. And the work that he is ready to do is righteousness and faithfulness. That's why when Paul in Ephesians 6 talks about preparing ourselves to respond to Satan's schemes to discredit and deny the gospel. Remember, that's what spiritual warfare is. A lot of times we we talk about spiritual armor and it starts sounding kind of mystical. It's like, well, if we get just the right words and we get just the right posture and we do this and we do that and the other, then poof! It's not that. Ephesians was full of that. The city of Ephesus was dedicated to works like that. And Paul says spiritual warfare looks like putting on Christ. That's why in that passage, in Ephesians 6, he refers to girding our waist with truth. That word truth is exactly what the Greek translation of this verse gives us for faithfulness. The reason you and I gird ourselves with truth is we are imitating our king. That, brothers and sisters, is how we fight Satan. Not by magic words, not by getting in the right positions, not by the right... Well, you know. There are all kinds of things out there of, boy, if you, if you put this flower or this scent or whatever. No. If you want to fight this enemy that wants to discredit Christ by making a mockery of his church. Remember Ephesians 4, 5, and 6 talks about the application of the gospel to life and then right on the heels of saying and here's how you respond in all of these earthly, lifelong relationships he says now be aware there's an enemy that will oppose that. And the way that we deal with that is by looking to Christ and saying that's what I want to be when I grow up. And even as our king wages war here in these few verses against injustice and ungodliness, he brings peace there in verse 6. Not by brokering a deal, but by breaking a curse. It says, The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The calf and the young lion and the fatling together and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young ones shall lie down together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole, and the wean child shall put his hand in the viper's den. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now at one level, brothers and sisters, that hasn't happened yet. At one level, that waits a time when we see Christ face to face, and He announces that the curse is finished in full. But this starts happening now within the church. This Christ tears down long-standing barriers, walls between Jews and Gentiles, between rich and poor, between cultured and uneducated, between Russians and Ukrainians, Palestinians and Israelis, Republicans and Democrats. If this gospel is true, we have more in common with our brothers and sisters on the other side of any international border you care to name than we do with non-Christians who talk, speak, dress, and vote like us. And the divisions that at least to some degree, will still lurk in the back of our minds. The ones that we grew up with. The ones that we've tried really hard to set aside and yet we keep finding ourselves defaulting to, well, we can't trust so and so because, well, you know what they're like. Those remind us that the Christ whose kingdom has come still is working, making us like Him fit to be in His kingdom. It reminds us we're not home yet. But peace will reign because the Prince of Peace has crushed the serpent's head at the cross. It happens because, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He has taken away the most fundamental warfare that we have been in, a war against our Creator. And because of that, every other warfare will cease. And so every time that you and I meet someone that we used to hate, uh, not hate, we don't hate, uh, someone we just don't get along with and it's all their fault, really, we wouldn't we wouldn't hate anyone. But if we did, when we meet that person, and we find that the Spirit has taught us to forgive them. Better yet, when we find out, when that person walks through the back door and we find that the Spirit has brought us both to Christ, and that this is now a brother or a sister. What we do is we announce to a watching world that Jesus really does bring this kind of impossible, unimaginable peace to a world at war with its maker and itself. And as this new David, sprung from the cut off stump of Jesse's family tree, rules with wisdom and power, we see that his kingdom is broader. Than the twelve tribes. Isaiah reveals, starting in verse 10, more briefly, that Jesus is the root of Jesse and the banner of the nations who gathers his people. And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse who shall stand as a banner to the people, for the Gentiles shall seek him, and his resting place shall be glorious. It shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall send his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people who are left, from Assyria and Egypt, from Pathros and Cush, from Elam and Shinar, from Hamath and the islands of the sea. He will set up a banner for the nations and will assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Also the envy of Ephraim shall depart, and the adversaries of Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not envy Judah, and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. Remember Ephraim being another name for Israel, for the northern kingdom. They've fought each other for centuries. He says that will be in the past. Verse 14, But they shall fly down upon the shoulder of the Philistines toward the west. Together they shall plunder the people of the east. They shall lay their hand on Edom and Moab, and the people of Ammon shall obey them. The Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt. With his mighty wind he will shake his fist over the river and strike it in the seven streams and make men cross over dryshod. There will be a highway for the remnant of his people who will be left from Assyria, as it was for Israel in the day that he came up from the land of Egypt." Notice in verse 10, this stump of Jesse is also the root of Jesse. He's not only the descendant of David, he's also David's Lord. He's not just the son of David, he's not just the new David. He's the son of the Most High that we read about this morning in Luke 1, 32. The one who had made David. And like David of old... Our King Jesus not only delivers his people, but he teaches us to worship the true God well. Remember, as King, David not only swings the sword, he's also writing the Psalms. He's also the first one in line to worship and to bring sacrifice. And our King does the same for us. He teaches us, he leads us by example. This branch is a banner. He's a signal. He's a standard. People from all the nations, verse 10 says, shall seek Him, shall flock to Him. He gathers true Israel from out of every land. Then verse 11 on down to verse 16. He talks about bringing back the survivors, the ones that are scattered south to Egypt, east into Shinar, the the area that we would call Iraq. Beyond that, into, into Elam. The west, the islands of the sea, wherever they are, there are no lost tribes of Israel. This shepherd calls his sheep, hear his voice, and they come running. And not just the ones that can trace their family line back to Egypt and beyond. He says, again, that he removes the enmity and the jealousy. Verse 14 says, he compels Gentiles to obey. And in verse 10, he says that Gentiles too will seek him. So most of the Old Testament promises for people who are not Jewish run something like he will crush them with a rod of iron. That's why in Ephesians 2 we hear that we were far from the promises of God. The only promise that we had to look forward to, by and large, was judgment by a coming king. And yet, every so often, the Spirit throws in something like this to say, there's more to the story. You and I, who had nothing but judgment to look forward to, are called to the same banner, to the same flag, to be a part of the same flock, John 10. Jesus says, I won't miss those sheep either. We aren't waiting for a different Messiah. We may not share Abraham's DNA, but we've been given Abraham's faith. It's what Simeon prayed in Luke 2. Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation which you have prepared before the face of all peoples. A light to bring revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. So Jesus is being revealed in order to demonstrate the glory of God for both Jews and Gentiles. We're not going to have a section of Christ followers here and some other section of Christ followers here. And while that group over there has a different language, they can do their own thing. There is one church. That's why I'm thankful that we're praying for brothers and sisters this morning, some of whom speak Arabic. Arabic. Some of them English, some of them French, some of them Swahili, some of them the, I forget how many hundred languages in Papua New Guinea. Some of those languages have like nine people. But some of them are being brought to announce that Jesus is Lord. What does it look like to seek this root of Jesse? It starts out by seeing that we didn't start out with him. Like Israel of old, our disobedience means we're under judgment. That's not about somebody else. Those, every, that every moment where we looked and said, I want what I want, when I want, how I want. Those times that we find it offensive that the world doesn't work the way we think it should work. Those times that we are furious that the person in front of us forgot that we're in a hurry and they really need to get out of our way. By nature, you and I aren't filled with wisdom and understanding. On our own, we didn't show knowledge and fear of the Lord. We didn't delight in who God is or what He's like. We didn't love Him or love His ways. Left to ourselves, Jesus' righteousness is not good news. In our natural state... We are spiritually dead, waiting for judgment. This righteousness is not good news by itself, because the promise is that He has come to judge with righteousness, and that means that you and I stand guilty. But because Jesus has become a man, because He has stepped out of heaven to walk as one of us, because He has, at the cost of His own life, taken on our sins for everyone that will believe Him, Because by his death, he has purchased the peace that Isaiah talks about here. Now there is, verse 10, a resting place. And it really is glorious. If you come to him, you will find that he's been stricken. So you and I may be saved. There is no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because he saves to the uttermost. Just as Yahweh struck Egypt and led Israel out with a mighty hand. He led them through the Red Sea on dry land. Isaiah says, they'll come walking back across the Euphrates River. Whatever obstacles are there are going to be cleared out of the way. This Lord gathers His people. And it is no less astonishing when He takes spiritually dead God-haters waiting for hell with a dread of death. It makes us alive with Christ, seated with Him in heavenly places so that we have a taste now of what it is like to be with Him and He with us inseparably, eternally. And He brings us near, teaching us to call call Him beloved, to call Him our brother, To speak of a redeeming Father that for the first time we love, even as we tremble in awe. And so our refrain, as we see this Christ, this stump and root of Jesse, is found there in chapter 12. Here's our right response. In that day you shall say, O Lord, I will praise you, though you were angry with me. Your anger is turned away and you comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For Yah, the Lord, is my strength and song. He also has become my salvation. Therefore, with joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And in that day, you will say, praise the Lord. Call upon his name. Declare his deeds among the peoples. Make mention that his name is exalted. Sing to the Lord, for he has done excellent things. This is known in all the earth. Cry out and shout, O inhabitant of Zion, for great is the Holy One of Israel in your midst. Our hope isn't that we will be together if the fates allow. Our hope isn't that we will have a one day vacation from our sorrows and fears. Our joy and our hope comes because the Son of David, the rod of Jesse who shepherds and protects us, has come. He has brought us a righteousness and a peace without waiting for us to earn it. And He will never, never forsake us. And so we sing, this day and all the others, Great is the Holy One of Israel in your midst. Let's pray together. Father, you have done great and astonishing things. If we had made up a story like this, that you would, for our sakes, send your Son to die. If we had made up a story that said that your Son, the eternal God, would become like us, so that we could become like him. It would be nothing short of blasphemy. But you have made up this story. You have told this story. And you have done it on the pages of history. Lord Jesus, thank you for becoming a man. For taking on flesh and dwelling with us for facing all manner of sorrows and pains and humiliation so that we could share in Your glory and Your kingdom and Your joy. Holy Spirit, thank You for announcing these things, for putting them in a way that we can read and understand or at least begin to understand. Thank You for giving hearts to begin to believe. For giving us eyes to see what was once hidden in darkness. Thank you that you are set on completing this work that you've begun. So would you fill us with joy? Would you fill us with awe as we look around at brothers and sisters that we never expected to, to have. Would you give us wisdom to love each other well as you teach us to love you well? We ask it again in the name of Jesus. Amen.